Hey, if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, like Daniel said, we're picking back up in our series Planted today. I, has anybody else, have your allergies been crazy this week? Because mine, I, my head is a snot factory, and I know that you wanted to know that, but just bear with me today. I barely got through first service, and you might want to keep your camera handy because something weird might happen up here. I don't know. But uh, the... Um, we are in the book of First Kings as a church. That's where we are. And so, like Danielle said, if you're jumping in with us, it's like day 102 on the reading plan. Just jump in where we are. You can catch up at the end of the year the stuff you didn't read. But the book of First and Second Kings, these books tell the stories of all of the kings of Israel and Judah. And uh, we know that Israel's first king was a man named Saul. But Saul was not faithful to God or to his commands. And so God ultimately rejected him and chose another man named David to be the second king of Israel. And David was described as a man after God's own heart. What an incredible way for someone to, to think of you as a man or a woman after God's own heart. But that's what he was. He was faithful to God. He was careful to follow all of the Lord's commands. And while he wasn't perfect, here's what was different about David. When David was confronted with his sin, he didn't fill himself up with pride. He didn't, you know, respond angrily or dig his heels in. David humbled himself and he repented of his sin, and he returned to the Lord. And because of that, David would be remembered as one of Israel's greatest kings. And at the end of, of David's reign is where the book of 1 Kings actually picks up. David's life is coming to an end. One of his sons makes a, a desperate grab for the throne. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 1. He is not successful, and David ultimately appoints his son Solomon to be the third king of Israel. Now Solomon's mother was Bathsheba, and you might recognize that name from the tragic account of David's act of adultery with her and from David's plot and successful attempt to kill her husband Uriah. That was all to cover up the fact that Bathsheba was pregnant with David's baby. Uh, that baby ultimately died. So Solomon is not connected to that story necessarily, but Bathsheba is his mom. And we find that, that David kept her as one of his wives, and later she bore Solomon. Solomon was born around 1000 BC, and he took his place on the throne around 970 BC. So he was about 30 years old when he started to reign in Israel. And like his father David, Solomon reigned for 40 years. Now, shortly after Solomon took the throne, God spoke to him in a dream. And in that dream, God offered to give Solomon anything he wanted. And we read uh, what Solomon chose in 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 9. This is Solomon speaking. He says, so give your servant, give me a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. If the Lord offered to give you anything you wanted, would you have responded like Solomon? Or would you have maybe asked for a new car or, you know, more, more money or, or power or whatever it might be? But the fact is Solomon humbly acknowledged his inability to rule and he unselfishly asked God for a discerning heart, the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. In a word, what Solomon asked for was wisdom. 
And the text tells us that God was pleased with that request, and he honored that request, and then God added wealth and honor to the plate as well. He gave Solomon those things anyway, even though he hadn't asked for it. In fact, we read in 1 Kings chapter 10 that King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. And people came from all over just to listen to him speak. They wanted to hear these words of wisdom that he would say, and uh, they were captivated by the things that he talked about. Solomon wrote much of his wisdom down for us. We find it in the books of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Song of Songs. And he also used his wisdom to rule justly over the people of Israel. In one of the, the better known accounts of this, we, we find two women coming before him, both claiming to be the mother of the same child. And what happened is the, the son of one of these women died, and, and one of them is blaming the other of stealing her baby to replace uh, her own baby that had died. And so here's Solomon's proposal. He says, you know what? I have no idea who the mom is, so let's just cut the baby in half, and you can both have half of the kid. And he did that because he knew that the real mother would rather see this other woman take the child than have her son be killed. And that's exactly what happened. And so Solomon was able to reunite this baby with his true mother. That's the kind of thing that Solomon did, especially early on in his reign. And then in 1 Kings chapter 6, we read that Solomon took on the massive endeavor of building a temple for the Lord. Ever since the Israelites had left slavery in Egypt, God had dwelt in their presence inside of a tabernacle that they had built. When you hear the word tabernacle, think of a really ornate tent. It was this portable tent that they could carry with them as they moved from place to place. But now they were in the promised land. They were no longer moving around. So Solomon took all of the materials and the plans that his father David had, uh, had brought together, and he took on the task of actually building this temple. And it took seven years to complete all of the building, and it was a marvelous, uh, marvelous temple that he built for the Lord. But right about this time, right about when the temple was completed, Solomon's story took a turn, and he began doing some things that seem less than wise. Let me share a few of them with you. First, we read that he spent 13 years building a palace for himself. So seven years to build the Lord's temple, 13 years on his own palace. It's not just because he was taking his time. That's an indication that the palace he built for himself was twice as nice as what he had built for the Lord, okay? He started using forced labor to complete his building projects. And this is something that the Lord had commanded the Israelites not to do. Uh, he, he started making alliances with foreign kings and nations. And he did this largely by marrying women from these foreign nations. Again, something the Lord had specifically commanded the Israelites not to do. We we're even told that one of his wives was Pharaoh's daughter from Egypt. Imagine that. The, the place that had held the Israelites captive for all of those years. Now uh, Solomon is entering into a, a relationship with them, marrying the Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, it's just unspeakable. Ultimately, he ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. What are you going to do with all those wives, Solomon? That's a lot of wives. He started acquiring excessive amounts of horses and chariots in an effort to build up his military. He, he acquired excessive amounts of gold and riches. And in all of these things, what we see is that about halfway through Solomon's story, his heart started turning away from God. 
And when you fast forward to the end of Solomon's life, when he dies, his son Rehoboam takes over. And unfortunately, he picked up right where dad left off. He caused a great divide in Israel to the point that, that the, the nation, the kingdom of Israel, split into two separate kingdoms. And now it was called Israel in the north, and it was called Judah in the south. And from this point on, the rest of First and Second Kings documents the story of those two kingdoms and the kings that would come to rule both of them. And there are a few good kings that are mentioned, but most prove to be uh, corrupt and unfaithful to God. They lead the people to do all kinds of evil, all kinds of wickedness. And so God eventually punishes both of these nations by sending them into exile. He uses both the Assyrian and the Babylonian armies to come in and to carry off the people of Judah and Israel. Now, I jump far ahead to share that part in the story because most scholars believe that First and Second Kings were written while both Judah and Israel were in exile. It, it was written to document how they got there. It was written to, to show them why God would allow and even cause them to be carried off in slavery in the first place. And it was all because of their sin and their unfaithfulness to God. And it started with Solomon. And so I want to go back to what is a pivotal point in Solomon's story. Right after he finished building the temple for the Lord, again, about halfway through his reign, and God came and he appeared to Solomon a second time to remind him about something that he had promised to Solomon's father, David. Here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 4. The Lord says, As for you, Solomon, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and you do all I command, and you observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now I want you to pay special attention to those words that God speaks, as I promised David. The, the promise that God made to David is a really important part of the Old Testament story. And in fact, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a really important part of your story as well. And the promise that, that God is referring to is summed up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God is speaking to David, King David. And here's what he says to him. He says, David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Okay, this passage is part of what is referred to as the Davidic covenant. And throughout the Old Testament, God enters into covenant relationships with five different men. Okay, he entered in with, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and then with David. Those five guys had a covenant relationship with the Lord. And Sandra Richter explains in her book, The Epic of Eden, how covenants worked in the ancient world. I, I want you to listen to this. She writes, A covenant was an agreement between two parties in which one or both makes promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions stipulated in advance. Okay, that's what a covenant was. So it made a way for 
two different parties to enter into a new legally binding relationship with one another. And it's important to note that oftentimes covenants were made between parties who had no previous relationship. The covenant itself legally created and defined what that relationship would be. So in his covenant with David, God says, here's my promise to you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Okay, God was promising David that one of his descendants, someone from his own family, would be the eternal king of Israel. And notice that this covenant is one-sided. It's, it's just God making a promise. He doesn't require anything from David. He just says, hey, this is the way it's going to be. Somebody from your family will have a never-ending kingdom. Well, here comes Solomon, right? David's son, Solomon. And the question that was on everyone's mind was, is Solomon the promised one? Is he the one who will reign as king forever? Will he be this eternal mediator between God and his people? Solomon looks good, right? Again, halfway through the story, he's got all this wisdom, all this power, all this wealth. He's doing good things. He built the temple. He's sharing wisdom, all of these things. But I want you to look again at the Lord's second appearance to Solomon in chapter 9. Okay, God has already told him, if you walk faithfully before me, you follow my commands, I'm going to fulfill that promise to David through you. But then he says this in verse 6, 1 Kings 9, verse 6, but if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name, Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. Okay? So he says, if you're faithful to me, I'm going to fulfill my promise through you. If you're unfaithful to me, disaster is going to come, and it's going to come on the entire nation of Israel. And as promising as Solomon looked in the beginning, he just couldn't pull it off. Something drew Solomon's heart to wander and to stray from God. And that thing, in one word, that caused Solomon's downfall was this. It was idolatry. Solomon turned to idolatry. And the difficult truth is this. Idolatry is as much an issue for us today as it was for Solomon so many years ago. We often turn to idols when we mistakenly believe the lie that God is not going to be faithful to us. And it's in those moments or those seasons of life when it feels like God is absent, when he's, it seems like God's not doing what he should be doing, that's when we seek to fill this perceived void with something else. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller defines an idol like this. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And Keller goes on to say that, that an idol is anything that's so central and so essential to your being that if you were to lose it, like life wouldn't even feel worth living. And he highlights four major categories of idolatry. I want to share them with you this morning. He highlights the idol of love, and the idol of money, the idol of success, and the idol of power. 
And I think that it's really important that we identify these categories because so often when we hear the word idol, uh, our, our minds maybe go to, to different things. Maybe you think of like a little statue. You know, some people have a, an actual physical idol. Maybe you think of, you know, the, the practices of maybe some ancient pagan, uh, you know, worship service or something like that. But, but when you look at these things, these things aren't tied to any one time period. These things aren't tied to, to any one physical object. These things aren't necessarily, you don't have to have some kind of pagan ceremony to be attracted to these things. They don't require anything special at all. And when you look at Solomon's story, like these are the things that he gave his heart to. He gave his heart to the idol of love. I mean, again, 700 wives and 300 concubines. I read in one of the commentaries this week, fellows, that if, if one wife isn't enough, neither will be a thousand. And how true is that? The idol of money. He gave his heart to the idol of money. We read in the scripture that he amassed 25 tons of gold in a single year. That's a lot of gold. The idol of success. Solomon spent twice as much time and energy on his own palace as he had spent on God's temple. Why? Well, because he wanted everybody to see, you know, how successful he was, how affluent he was. And he gave his heart to the idol of power, again, making allegiances and, and alliances with foreign nations and building up Israel's military strength. He was investing in this idol of power. Now, I think it's also important to note that these things in and of themselves, love, money, success, power, these, these things aren't inherently evil. There's nothing inherently wrong with any one of these categories. In fact, Keller says in his book that idolatry happens when we take good things, and we make them ultimate things, okay? So it's not that, that these things are inherently bad, but, but taking them and making them the center of your life, making them the ultimate purpose of your life, that's when they become an idol. And when you look at Solomon's life, you see that that's exactly what he did. Idolatry is when we worship the gift instead of the giver, and that's kind of how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. Here's what he says in Romans 1.25. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. You see, idolatry creeps in when we stop believing the truth about God, that, that He is faithful, that He cares about us, that He can be trusted. And Satan comes in and he whispers to us and he lies to us and he gets us to doubt God's faithfulness and, and to doubt that God is a good God, that he is sufficient for us. And when we exchange what is true about God for this lie that Satan whispers to us, that's when we start looking for something else to satisfy. Well, if God's not going to do it, then, then where am I going to get my meaning? Where am I going to get my security? Where, where am I going to be fulfilled? And we look to things to give us what only God can give. And every time we give our hearts to one of these idols, to love or power or success or money, we are essentially saying to God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you, God. I don't trust that you're going to be faithful to me. I don't trust that you're going to do what you promised to do. I don't trust that, that you've got my best interest in mind, and so I'm just going to do things my own way. I'm going to run after something else because I don't trust you. And that's exactly what Solomon did. He believed the lie that God could not be trusted, that God was not enough, and he embraced these idols. And so God, being a, a faithful God, he kept his promise to Solomon. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, we read this. 
The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. See, God kept his part of the bargain. Because of Solomon's unfaithfulness, God tore the kingdom from him. And the Moody Bible commentary says this about Solomon and and about all the kings after him. He says the implication is that the people should keep looking forward for the messianic king, the greater son of David. And Solomon started off so strong, didn't he? He he looked so promising. He looked so good. But he wasn't the one. And so for over 900 years, the Jewish people continued watching and waiting, and, and all of these kings would, would rise up, and they'd take their place. And like I said, some of them were good. Some of them did some good things, but most of them were completely corrupt. Most of them were completely evil, and they led the people into all kind of wickedness, and none of them were the, the enduring king or, or had the enduring kingdom that was promised to David. Until we get to the New Testament, And then we read that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. That woman's name was Mary. And interestingly enough, Mary is part of David's family. Her name comes up in David's family tree. And she named her son Jesus. And during his life on earth, Jesus never once turned away from his father. Though he was tempted in every way, just as you are, just as I am, He never once traded the truth of God for a lie. Jesus did what Solomon failed to do. He was completely faithful to God. And then being found completely faithful, he laid down his perfect life as a sacrifice for sin. And he initiated a brand new covenant in his blood for everyone who would believe in him. Here's how the author of Hebrews says it. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, He says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant and those who are called, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And this new covenant that that Christ initiated, it comes with a, a new promise and it's the promise of an eternal inheritance. Remember, God had promised David that someone from his line would would be an eternal king. Well, Christ is that promised eternal king, and he would have an eternal kingdom. Well, here's the great news. He has made a way into his eternal kingdom for you and me. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you hear this language that he is using here? Excluded from citizenship, foreigners being brought near. Like this is, this is the language of exile and then the, the language of return. Because of Israel's sin, they were forced out of their home. They were forced out of their land. And they were put into exile in a foreign country and they had no way of returning. But folks, that's not just Israel's story. That's the story of the human race. That's your story. That's my story. Because of our sin, we were exiles living in captivity in a foreign land. But God loved us so much 
that he offered us a way out of captivity. He could not bear the thought of leaving us in exile. And so because of his faithfulness, he left heaven and he came to rescue us. And though we were once excluded from citizenship, once we were were foreigners, now if we put our faith and trust in Christ, we can be brought near to God through the blood of Jesus. He took the punishment for your sin so that you could be brought near to God. And God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That means that Jesus took all of your sin, everything you've ever done, And he gives to you in exchange his righteousness, his faithfulness. And Jesus offers us this new covenant, this new promise. Here's the deal. Jesus says, this is my part. I'll be your Lord. I'll be your Savior. I will be your King. And while you are on earth, I will provide for you. I will protect you. I I will defend you against the enemy, against his lies and his attacks. And I promise you that when your life ends that I will have an eternal inheritance waiting for you. I promise to provide a home for you in my kingdom, and it's going to be awesome. We're going to be together forever. There will be no more sin, no more sadness, no more sickness, none of it. Just me and you in my eternal kingdom. That's Christ's part. And what's our part? Well, we have to place our faith and our trust in Jesus. We, we have to trust in his faithfulness. We have to trust in his goodness and then keep our eyes on him. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it in, in chapter 10. He says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. God can be trusted, he will keep his promises. And when you begin to hear the lies of the enemy saying, No, he won't. He's not going to be faithful to you. He's not going to accept you. He doesn't care about you. Why would he after what you've done, after the things that, that you've been a part of? Listen, when the enemy speaks those things to you, here's what you do. You hold tightly to Jesus's faithfulness. You hold tightly to Jesus's faithfulness because it was never about you. It was never about you doing enough or being good enough or or being the one who was faithful enough that God would accept you. No, God accepted you not on your merits, but on Christ's faithfulness. And Christ became sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. He just gives it to us as a free gift. All we have to do is hold tightly to it, receive it by faith, and then hold tightly to Jesus's faithfulness, because his faithfulness is our hope. We're going to end today with a time of prayer, and I want to give you some time to think through these things, to think over these things, because here's the deal, folks. Even for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, maybe even for your whole life, it's really easy when we go through difficult circumstances or Uh, You know, it just feels like God isn't near for us to be like Solomon and for our hearts to start to turn away from God and turn towards the attraction of, of the idols of money and success and power and love. And these things, like they're attractive to us. And so maybe we need to take some time this morning and just examine our hearts and to ask God, is there, is there any way that, 
that I've begun to turn my heart and turn my affection toward one of those things? And if so, to turn our hearts back toward God, to again hold tightly to Christ, to hold tightly to his faithfulness. And so I want to invite you to to close your eyes and, and to bow your heads with me. And let me just lead you through thinking through some of this. And and let's just start here. Maybe there are some here today who have never surrendered their lives to Christ. And uh, the fact of the matter is you are looking for fulfillment in things that cannot fulfill. You are running after things that will not bring you life. And you have been left wanting time and time again. And I hope that you have heard this morning that the free gift of God to you is life through Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the most fulfilling life you can ever imagine. It's life eternal with Him. It's the hope that you've been looking for. And you don't have to perform for it. You don't have to do enough good to outweigh the bad. All you have to do is surrender to Him. All you have to do is come to, come to God and say, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize my need for forgiveness. And I recognize that you have done everything necessary through the perfect life and the sacrificial death and the hope-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ for me to be in a right relationship with you. And you can pray for that this morning and God's answer will be yes. Welcome to my family. But again, I I recognize that many of us have been walking with Christ for some amount of time. And these idols of of love and success and power, these things are, they're attractive to us. And especially in those times when we don't feel like God is near and, and we just want something that we can grab onto and maybe take control of ourselves and And maybe you've turned your heart toward one of these things. And maybe relationships have taken center stage for you. Maybe maybe something like money has taken center stage for you. Maybe it's, it's success in the workplace or on the field or in your home or whatever it might be. Or maybe it's that idol of power. And you just really need people to know that, that you're in charge and you're the boss and you've got all the answers. And again, none of these things are in and of themselves bad, but maybe you've made one of these good things an ultimate thing in your life, the ultimate pursuit of your life. Maybe just take a minute to ask God to search your heart and see if there's any offensive way in you, especially when it comes to these things. And maybe as one or two of them come to the surface and you recognize, man, I'm, I'm, I'm running after something here that I'm not supposed to run after. Your next step is to repent, to confess that to God and to repent. Maybe pray something like, Father, I, I just recognize I'm, I'm way too drawn to this thing, whatever it is, this relationship, this item, this money, this job. And I don't want my heart to be given to anything but you. 
You are the king of my heart. You are my heart's one desire, my heart's ultimate affection, God. And so I lay my idol at your feet and I turn my heart back towards you this morning and I recommit again to hold tightly to Christ's faithfulness, to keep my eyes on you. Father, we thank you so much that our salvation is not dependent on our righteousness, on our goodness, but that it was dependent on Christ's righteousness that was then given to us. And we don't come before you repenting and confessing to try to earn your love or earn your acceptance. Father, we come to you because of your love. We come to you because of your acceptance. It's the overflow of our hearts of gratitude that you would love even a sinner like me, even a, even a person who's done the things that I've done, God. And because of that, I, I want you to be my heart's one affection. And so, Lord, as we sing a couple of more songs here this morning, Father, I pray that you would hear this as worship from our hearts, worship that we know belongs only to you, Father. And we, we just lay down our idols before you this morning. We realign our hearts with you, and we say, God, thank you for loving us. We love you too. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.